Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 is where we're going to be today. But before we get into this text, I want to put on my professorial hat for a minute and maybe help you with some things because I've had several questions over the past several weeks as it relates to Bible translation and Bible versions. You know that I preach from the NASB, the New American Standard, and I do that for a reason. You know, I, I try to do things not simply out of preference, just because I like something, but I usually try to make sure we got a reason for doing what we do. And let me, let me just take a minute and let's, uh, let's give a crash course in, in Bible translation. So I brought my, my whiteboard up here. You know I like my whiteboard. And let's just... Uh, Woo, I'm standing right in front of this speaker. Y'all might have to do something with me for a little while. Let's look at this for just one second and see how it is that we have wound up with so many versions of Scripture. And For example, I wonder how many versions of here, here today. Somebody shout out what you have. What are you reading from? NASB. Say again. NASB. Okay. Dr. John? NASB. Somebody else? NASB. ESV? KJV? What else? NIV? NLT? My word. Listen. Yeah, y'all see? So, so this really is a, a prudent exercise for us, to, for us to look at. So let's look at Bible translation just a minute. See how we, how we have so many uh, right here in our, in our own church. And of course, translation, you understand, may not... We're talking about the physical act of interpret, uh, or taking a language from one language into another... But, but th this word translation is very loaded as it relates to what you may carry because you know there's a difference in a translation and a version. And we want to talk about versions. And most of the time that's designated just by having a V in whatever it is you're reading. KJV, uh, NIV, ESV, that, that means version. And that's very different from a translation. But we're just talking about the process of it. So here's what happens whenever we translate anything. We, we, we start with what's known as uh, the original, I like to call it heart language. And we go from that to another language, and that is known as the host language. So what is the heart language of the Bible? Hebrew Old Testament. So what is New Testament? Okay, so heart language of the Bible is Hebrew and Greek. Now, when we go into another language, whether no matter what it is, uh, any live active language, whether it's English, uh, Portuguese, Spanish, or whatever, we are taking heart language of the Bible and we're putting it into the host language. And you understand sometimes... And those of you who are bilingual understand that sometimes one language just can't encompass what another language is expressing. It's just the virtue of human language. Just sometimes it's, it's not possible to do that. So we take a stab at it, and here's how we get there. Let's run right down the middle and let's put some factors that determine how we translate from heart language into host language. And host language, for our purpose today, is going to be English. Anytime you're dealing with languages, all, all languages basically operate uh, with the same nuts and bolts. You're going to be dealing with vocabulary. Vocabulary is simply the word selection. Uh, they'll have a word for this, a word for that. That's vocabulary. We also have to deal with our friend grammar because every language will have rules of grammar that you know, must be obeyed. If not, your language ends up going down into a pile of nothing. So those language, uh, those rules hold it in the middle of the road. We also have to deal with another factor that's known as syntax. Syntax is sometimes it's word order, but most often it's the relation of one word to another. And in any given, in any given language or in any given text, when a translation comes out, or when translators start, one of the first things they do, they don't just sit down and say, well, I think we'll translate this way and this way and that way. It's not just based on preference. A version will have 70 of the top scholars 
in not only heart language of the Bible, but also in host language in which they're going into. So there's some real nerds and geeks, but they're at the top of their game. And they will, before they start translating, whoever has commissioned the version or the translation will have a philosophy of translation. And that philosophy is what dictates the direction they go. Because every version, no matter what it is, let's write some of them up here. Let's write the NIV. Let's write ESV. And let's write New American Standard. The philosophy will determine how they go. For example, we have rules of grammar, we have rules of syntax, and a certain set of vocabulary in the heart language. We also have it over here for the host language. Sometimes those rules come in conflict. For example, in English, it is a no-no to have double negatives expressed within a sentence. Uh, for instance, you know, we say this stuff all the time, uh, kind of stuff. Uh, I ain't got no. <laughs> well, that's two negatives. Don't, don't they cancel out and make a positive? Uh, you know, if a student turns in a paper and I'm grading it and there's a double negative in a sentence, they get deemed for that. Can't have a double negative. But guess what? In the original heart language of the Bible, double negatives are not only acceptable, but they're useful. So we have that a lot of times. But now, anytime uh, they start out with a translation, that philosophy of translation is going to determine how they translate when they get into a sticky situation. For example, um, if we're going to be true to the vocab, grammar, and syntax of the heart language, that is a philosophy issue. Then when it comes down to these issues, we're going to translate them just like they're expressed. If we're going to be loyal to this language in our translation, then whatever the rules of grammar are over here are going to supersede this and we're going to smooth it out into the host language. So, for example, the NIV, their loyalty is to host language. ESV, their loyalty is to host language. Why do I preach and read and study from New American Standard? Because their loyalty is to the heart language. And this is my concern as a teacher and as a preacher. What did Paul mean for us to understand when he penned this text? Now, let me show you how this fleshes out. Look with me in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians, right where we are, but let's look at chapter 3. Notice uh, what Paul says in... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 6. Here's just, just one verse. And you're going to see how translation... You'll be able to tell what the philosophy of your translation is when I give you this. Or what the philosophy of the translators were. Here's what Paul says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Now we've got an issue right here as it, as it relates to rules of grammar. Because normal rules of grammar in the host language of English say that when you start out with a verb, there's three verbs in that sentence. You see what they are? Planted, watered, was causing growth. When you start out with a verb tense in a sentence, normal rules of grammar say you have to carry that verb. And you're, you teachers are shaking your head. Y'all tracking with me. You have to carry that same verb tense throughout the sentence. But that's not a rule in Greek. Greek can have one in the present tense, another in the past tense, another in something else, perfectly fine. So now, did you see the way my New American Standard, which is loyal to this language, how it translated it? Translated it just like it's written in Greek. Paul, Apollos, or Paul planted, past tense, Apollos watered, past tense, but God... How many of you, your version that you're looking at has that as a past tense? Past tense. What does it say, Josh? What's your version say? God who made it grow. Past tense. So you see what they did? Your version is loyal to the rules over here in English. So you know what their philosophy of translation was. Now, that's not a real big deal, but it kind of is. Now, notice something else. Uh, look, what, look what else in this same uh, particular 
passage, here's what Paul says in verse 4. For one says, and remember, I'm reading from the New American Standard, I am of Paul, and another I am of Paulus. Are you not mere men? Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What and what is Paul? The New American Standard is loyal to heart language. So, when we come to this indefinite pronoun that Paul uses, the original language, it is without question, what is Paul? He's wanting them to focus on function, not personality. But now, normal rules of grammar for the host language of English says you don't use that indefinite pronoun when you're referring to people. What do you use when you're referring to, peop to people? Who? How many of you are reading a version that translates that as who? Okay. So when I stand up here and I'm preaching on that point and I read it and I make a big deal out of that, you think, wait a minute, my Bible doesn't say that. Oh, there you go. All right, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Now look, these are, these are not big deals. I'm not trying to get you to lose confidence in whatever version you're reading because hear me, I, I'm, I don't knock any version and, and I don't just have a preference for any version. But I have a reason for reading from the New American Standard and simply because of their philosophy of translation. This is what's known as, it's what's known as a wooden translation. And a wooden translation means just that. It means it's rigid. It won't bend. It's not going to bend how it translates to accommodate rules of English. Whereas these over here are not so much wooden as they are rubber they will bend to accommodate our rules. So, just a little bit of, about Bible translation. I hope that was helpful. Uh, maybe you'll understand now uh, the differences in some. It all starts with a philosophy of translation. And that philosophy determines if your Bible is going to go with heart language or if it's going to go with host language. So now, let me read my text today from my New American Standard. Alright, here we go. Verse number 4, look what Paul tells those Corinthians. Uh, chapter number 4, verse number 1. He says this, he says, <clears throat> Let a man regard us. Now who is the us that he's referring to? To Apollos and Paul and uh, those teachers that were down there in Corinth. Let a man regard us, because remember there were divisions about him and about Paul and Apollos and Peter. So he's referring to those leaders, those teachers. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am... Not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. I heard a story several years ago about an old Cajun that had a mule and another Cajun came to him and said, Man, I really need a mule. Do you have one that you're interested in selling? And the first Cajun says, Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do have a mule that I would let go, but there's only one problem. And the other Cajun said, Well, what is it? He said, He don't look too good. He said, Well, I really don't care how he looks. I'm just needing a mule that will work. Will he do work? The man said, Oh, he'll plow all day long. But I'm telling you, the only thing is he just don't look too good. And the guy says, well, I'm not concerned at all about how pretty he is. He said, let me take him. So he bought the mule, went off, and about a week he came back. And he said to the guy that sold, he said, man, that mule has walked over everything in my garden. He's trampled over fences. He runs into light poles. He's knocked himself nearly out on tree limbs. He said, I've come to the conclusion that mule is blind as a bat. And first Cajun said, I told you, he don't look too good. So in that same vein of looking good, I want to ask this question to you today. How do you look? 
And I'm not talking about in your Sunday clothes. <laughs> I'm talking about how you see things. And Paul's going to point out a couple of things here of, about how we should look and how we should view some things. And how we look at these things just might color a lot of the other things that we view on a daily basis. So notice what it is as, as we ask the question, how do you look? What is it that Paul says to us about that in this particular passage? Well, I think the first thing in verses 1 through 2 that Paul highlights for us is this. He tells us that we are not to look too highly upon our leaders. Not to look too highly upon our leaders. Now, check out what he does right here. He, he, he tells them how it is that you ought to be looking at your leaders. And this is very helpful because, boy, I want to tell you today, probably worse than any other time in church history, we have exalted some leaders uh, to a place which really they ought not have. Uh, we have kind of this rock star mentality about pastors and preachers and singers and all of that stuff that ultimately is not healthy because I want to just remind you that no matter who the leader is, they're still a man or a woman. And they're still subject to disappoint greatly. And I think Paul kind of tempers that when he tells these Corinthians that would y'all quit even having this debate about which one of us you like because that's not important. We are not to view our leaders too highly. Look what he says in verse number 1. He tells them how it is that they should view their leaders. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So how is it that we should view leaders? We should view them, number one, as servants of the Master. Interesting here that the word that Paul uses that's translated for servants isn't the normal word that he uses over and over again that's sometimes translated as a slave. It's a word that's only used about three times in all the New Testament and here's what the word is. It's the word under rower. So when Paul says that we are servants of the master, what he's saying is that we are under rowers. Now, I've tried to get a photo and Dr. John looked up and found me a good photo of one of these old sailing ships that was also equipped with oars. And Miss Margie, do we have that? Th hey, let me get this out of the way. Jamie, will you grab that thing? I meant to move this before I got started because it's going to be all up in our way today. You see, this photo that's uh, up on your screen right now is a representation of what it is that Paul was talking about. Because here's a ship that is a sailing ship, but it's also equipped for when it runs into places where the wind just totally stops blowing. And this gives us a picture of, of really the church, and it gives us a picture of you and I as servants of the church. I mean, there's a lot of old gospel songs that refer to the church as the old ship of Zion. How many of you are brave enough to raise your hand and let us know how old you are by remembering some of that terminology in some songs from way, way back? Yes, ma'am. This old ship of Zion. It's a good metaphor for the church. But notice this particular picture because this is exactly what it is that Paul's talking about. And he says that we are under rowers. Now an under rower, you can tell where they would sit. They would be down in the hot belly of that boat, probably somewhere around the equator in the doldrums where the wind quits blowing. And it was up to them to provide manpower in order to propel the boat. So let's deduce a few things from this picture and from this word that Paul gives us as he describes leaders as servants and as under rowers. I think the first observation we can make is this. If this is a metaphor for the church, then we can say that sometimes the church is driven by high winds. I mean, that's the purpose of a sailing ship, is it not? I mean, those old ships, uh, if the wind didn't move them, a lot of them just were stuck. There was nowhere that they could go. So sometimes we can say the church is moved or driven by high winds. Now boy, that, that sure is good when that takes place. You know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes it seems like God just comes in and He just fills the sails with the breath of the Holy Spirit of God 
and the ship just moves to where it is God wants at a certain speed and everything is under the control of the wind. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I haven't seen that a whole lot in the, United, in, in the church in the United States of America. I mean, there's, there are times, there are seasons when that takes place. And I, one guy describes it as riding waves, like, like, like if you're a surfer. You know, a surfer doesn't create waves. A surfer rides waves. And it's the same way with the church. We can't create the wind. We can just put the sails up and catch the wind and let God's wind drive the church. I don't see that a whole lot here in the United States of America. But boy, let me tell you, you see it on the front lines of global missions. Uh, Dana and Cheryl are here today, just got back from Brazil. And I can remember there was a time not long ago, Dane will affirm this, that God was doing such among the quilombolas of Brazil until our primary concern was staying out of God's way so that we don't mess it up. Because here's what you do when the ship's under wind power. When it's under wind power, guess what you do with your oars? That's exactly what you do with them. You pull them in. Because what would happen if the ship's under wind power and you got the oars out in the water? You know, the ship's going to not steer right. It's going to go to one side. It's going to go to the other. And it'll just mess up what would happen automatically. So you get them things in. And that's what happens when God begins to do something in a church. The best thing we can do is get out of His way so that we don't mess it up. Man, I pray that God will send a strong wind from heaven and fill the sails of Grace Church and take us to where He intends us to be. But notice, number next, this word picture also tells us that not only is sometimes a church moved by high winds, but sometimes a church is moved by hard work. And more often than not, in a U U.S. context, this is what I see. It takes hard work to get a church from point A to point B. Can I say to you, I've done a lot of things in life professionally, but by far the hardest thing and the most frustrating thing is ministry. Because it just takes hard work. And anybody who says that a church leader only works two days a week, they ain't got a clue. Most of the time, if you only work two days a week, it was yesterday and tomorrow. Because those are always coming. Yeah, I, I did. I work yesterday, I'm working tomorrow, I'm working today. Or three days a week, you know, because it's just hard work. A church doesn't get from point A to point B without either the wind, supernatural propulsion of God, or some people doing hard work because they've got their hand on an oar. Now, just knowing that, can I say this to you, what we need at Grace Church? Hey, we don't need any more riders. Because ever notice the more riders you put on that, on that ship right there, guess what you do to your rowers? Huh? Yes, sir. It makes it harder. The more weight you've got on there in the form of riders, the harder the work is for the rowers. Can I say to you that most churches today are powered by 20% of the people who attend? Grace Church can't be that way. If we're going to continue to move, if we're going to continue to grow and we're going to continue to go, we can't have riders, we've got to have some rowers. Hey, another thing, we've got to have rowers. We can't have anchors. We don't need any anchors. We need folk who are willing to roll up their sleeve and sit in the belly of this beast and row with all your might. Check out number next. What else does Paul or what else can we deduce from this word picture of an under rower that Paul says this is how we're to look at our leaders. They are under rowers. Sometimes the church is moved by high winds, sometimes the church is moved by hard work, but here's another distinction that we have to remember. We have an oar, but he has the helm. We don't get to decide and determine direction. He does. You see, the helm is what steers the ship. The oar is what powers the ship. And sometimes we get those confused. Sometimes we think we're the captain. When you were not the captain, we're the under rower. Sometimes we think we're the chief and we're not the chief. We're an Indian down in the belly of this thing with an oar in our hand. So never forget where you are and what your role is and what his role is and where he is. 
You see, we have an oar, but he has the helm. Now, what that means practically is this. You may not even know where we're going, but that doesn't matter. You don't have to know. And there are so many folk that it seems that the Spirit of God draws near to them and is leading them to do something, and they will not do it because they're not sure where it's going and how it's going to end. And can I say, as an oarsman, it's not even your right to know where you're going. It's only your job to keep your hand on that oar and keep going. Check out number next. What else can we deduce from this? We have an oar, but he has the helm. And finally, this word picture tells us that we have a porthole, but he's on the bridge. Now, those guys down in the bottom of that ship, they were lucky if they had a porthole. And look here, how big is a porthole? It's about like this. You're sitting by that porthole and you're rowing. What view do you have? You have this view out the side. No matter where you are, you have this view. But where is he? He's on the bridge. He's up top. He has the highest vantage point. He sees clearly. He knows where we're going. He has the helm. He's on the bridge. We have an oar and we only have a porthole. Can I say to you, that requires faith. You've got to trust your captain because all you're doing is rowing with all your might, but he's taking you to where he wants you to be. You probably can't even see it because you don't have the vantage point to see it. The only thing you're going to know is when he says we're here. And when you feel that boat bump up against the bottom, the sandy shore of a beach somewhere, you know that you've arrived. Now here's the deal. It's not our prerogative to know where or to know why. And those are the two questions that we ask all the time just by nature of who we are. We want to know where and we want to know why. You don't need that information because you are on the oar. You would need that information if you were on the bridge and you had the helm. But that's not your role. Stay in your lane. Let him do what he does and let us do what we do and that is row this thing with all our might. You don't have to know where. You don't have to know why. Here's what you got to know. You've got to know what and you got to know how. What and how. That's all you need to know. What am I to do? Well, you're to sit down right here and you're to row. But you know there is something to row. And if you ever rowed a boat, I mean if you don't have a little bit of skill, you're going to end up going in circles for a long time. So that's a part of the process. It's not only knowing what, but learning how to navigate this. And those are the two things that you and I must know. Um, We have a porthole, but he is on the bridge. Now, notice what else it is that Paul says. He says, not only are we under rowers, but look at this next word that he uses. He says, he says in verse number 1 that we are servants of Christ, that is, servants of the Master. But also in verse number 1, uh, wait a minute, uh, he says that we, are, uh, that we are stewards of the mysteries. Now, before I get into the implications of being a steward... Let me just back up and say that there's one more role as being an under-rower. Not only we're an under-rower, but you got to be a team player. Because what happens if one side of the ship is rowing and the other side is eating potted meat? Where's the ship going to go? Where's it going? It's going to go in a circle. So we've got to be coordinated, and those who are on the starboard side and those who are on the port side have got to be on the same team we got to be listening to the same guy when he says, row, row, row. Because if one side is rowing harder than the other, then we're going to get off course. If this side's rowing harder, we're going to get off course. If one side quits rowing, we're going to go in circles. So it's imperative that we be team players. Have you ever watched those Olympic rowing sports? Man, I'd like to be the guy up front that just sits up there and says, row, stroke. You know, because these guys, I mean, they're just... The oar just barely hitting the water, and these guys are doing like 30 knots. It's amazing how they can do that. See, they're working in unison. They're on the same team. They are team players. So not only are our servants under rowers, 
Not only are they team players, but Paul also describes us as stewards of the mysteries. Look what he says. He says we, in verse 1, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now what does that mean? It simply means this. God's plan of redemption prior to the coming of Jesus Christ was a mystery. And God revealed it. He put it out in broad daylight on the cross with the Christ event. But you know what? There's still mystery to it because it's so incomprehensible. Who can imagine that God would choose to redeem His rebellious creation by sending His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and die on a cross to pay a debt that He didn't owe? Man, that's incomprehensible. That's a mystery. I have a ton of questions. And Paul is talking about the fact that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, check out what he says about stewards here in verse number 2. He says, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You may want to underline that. It's the same word built that we that sometimes translated as faith or faithful. And there are several passages in Scripture that indicate, blows my mind, that God has faith in us. And here's one of them. But here's what's going on here. He says, the number one requirement of a steward of the mysteries of God is that they be trustworthy. Trustworthy to do what? What, what did a steward do? Well, a steward was the one who took care of the household of the master. He was responsible for everything, but he owned nothing. He was the one that had to do all the buying and all the preparation to make sure that all the other household servants even had something to eat. So here's what our job is as a steward. Our job, number one, as a steward is to be faithful to preserve the integrity of the message. Friend, listen to me. We can't monkey with the message. And so many folk today are wanting to make the message palatable to fit their theological preference, and I'm telling you, that's not trustworthy. Do you understand we have our theological convictions not necessarily because we like them, but because that is the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And you know, here's the the reality. We only exist today because every generation between us and the Lord Jesus Christ over 2,000 years was faithful to preserve the integrity of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, if it would have went off, we wouldn't even be here. And can I tell you, there's a ton of folk out there who have deviated, went from one side to the other, monkeyed with the message, and they're damning people's souls to eternal hell with a half-truth that they're peddling as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the job of a steward, number one, to preserve the integrity. My number one concern as a pastor is when I stand up here, By golly, I better know that I know that what I'm saying is thus saith the Lord. Not the opinion of pinhead Pastor Richie. And it's my commitment to you to never do that. But to preach and preserve the integrity of the message and the mysteries that God has given us contained in His Word. But here's the second responsibility of a steward in being found trustworthy. Number one, to preserve the integrity of the Word. But number two, to pass on the content of the Word. To pass it on. Why did did the owner of the house give everything he had to the steward? Because he wanted him to save it for himself? Did he want him to, the the, the steward, to amass a a big pile of, of resources? Absolutely not. He gives it to the steward for the steward to meet it out to the other servants so that they have what's necessary for them to perform their function. So here's our job as stewards. You know what it is? It's to pass along the integrity and the content of the message. Now, just a thought here, but could it be that sometimes the reason we are about this deep in God's Word It's because God knows we're not trustworthy with it. Huh? Could it be the reason that we have trouble sometime when we shut ourselves up and read the Word that we come out looking with a confused look on our face saying, I don't understand any of this. Because can I just be honest with you? As much theological training as I have had in my lifetime, enough for two lifetimes, 
I start on this passage on Monday morning because I know Sunday's coming until about Thursday. I look at Heather like a calf looking at a new gate saying, I ain't got a thing. We're going to look pretty foolish this Sunday because there's nothing making sense in this passage. And about Thursday or Friday, God will have mercy on me and He'll say, now I'm going to open your eyes and I'm going to show you some stuff in there. And you know why He does that? It's not because I'm smart, but because He knows that I'm going to share it. And He's not interested in... Look, if I just took this passage and I took my Greek New Testament because I've been trained to read that sucker, you know. If I just took my Greek New Testament and sat in my closet and said, God... I'm curious about this passage. I'd like to know the deep meaning of this passage. I can assure you that I would get nothing. You know why? Because that's not a faithful steward. A faithful steward is this. God, it's not for me. You open my eyes and I'll stand on the rooftop and proclaim this in my loudest voice. And guess what will happen? You know what? I love to do this to folk because this is is, is the story of my life. I don't have an option. I'm already on the calendar, you know. I'm going to be preaching next week. You know what I have to say for next week? Nothing. Not a thing. And listen, sometimes I'll just wear you frazzled because the number one fear in the United States of America is speaking in public. How many of you are scared to speak in public? Raise your hand. All right, I'm taking notes. You're going to preach one day. I'm putting you on the schedule. And look here, God ain't going to say a thing to you until you make that commitment. God, you give it to me and I'm going to say it. Huh? You give it to me, and I'm going to share it with somebody this week over lunch. You give it to me, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I'm going to take it to my grace group. You give it to me, and I'm going to share it with those people I work with. You give it to me, and I'm going to share it with somebody. Because that is a faithful steward. A steward's not about saving stuff for themselves. They're about getting it and passing it on to other people. My goodness, if we had a commitment to pass it on, how much more? Would God open our eyes to the grand mysteries contained within His Word? But until we're going to pass it on, He may not say anything. I can remember back, I don't know, it's been probably 10 years, 10 or 12 years ago now, Heather and I were in Brazil, and man, things were rocking. We had about three or four pastoral training sites, and they were about 200 kilometers apart. We didn't even have a car. I mean, we were dependent upon God to get us from this one to that one, 200 miles deeper in the jungle and get us all around. And man, it was just amazing what the Lord was doing. And I hate to say it, but we taught Brazil some pretty bad habits. And one of the things we taught them is, y'all, y'all, y'all got to have a Baptist convention down here. Whoever transported that to them <laughs> ought to be horsewhipped because their convention is nothing but, but a stumbling block and an impediment. Am I right, Dane? So here's what happened. Right in the middle of all of that stuff going on, the guy who is the convention man for our geographical region of the South American continent and Brazil, he came to me and he said, you know, Pastor Richie, every year at, uh, at the meeting, we pass out this book of reports. And he gave me a picture of it. Man, it was printed on, on glossy paper and it had pictures and all kind of stuff in it about that thick. And he gave it to me and said, look, thumb through this. He said, I would like you to submit a report of what God is doing as y'all are out here training these pastors and I'm going to put it in this publication at the next convention. So I thought, hmm. I said, all right, I'll do that. So it took me, I mean, I, I did my research. It took me a couple of days out of my busy schedule and I got all the numbers and all the statistics and everything that we were doing and I compiled them and I'm the king of the one pager. I gave him just a small paragraph of synopsis of everything that God had done in the past year. It was pretty amazing. Next thing, it was my job to get it to him because in those days, all the internet was run on radio signals and it literally depended on if the wind was blowing or not if you had an internet connection for a week. So it took me about a week to get that report to him. So time rocks on, I just forget about it, but the convention comes around. And I get one of the book of reports And you know what I'm looking for. It's the same thing you used to look for when you got your annual in high school. What's the first page you went to? Yeah, that's exactly right. You went to the page that had your picture on it. So you started going in alphabetical order to find your picture. Well, I started going through that convention book of reports to find my report. And I got to our geographical region, thumb through. Not on the first page. I'm disappointed. That should have had top billing. (laughs) Not on the second page. 
Not on the third page. By the time I'm getting to the end of it, wait a minute. They better not have put me on the very back page under the obituaries. <laughs> Turn the page. It's not even on there. So I thought, strange. So I just kind of let it go. Didn't think no more about it. But wait a minute. One day I ran into the convention man that asked me to write that report. And I said to him, hey, I got a copy of the book. And strange. I spent a lot of time putting that thing together and y'all didn't even print it. What happened? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he said, something else came along and we didn't have space to print both of them, so we just bumped yours and didn't get printed. So next year comes around. Convention man comes back and says, Pastor Richie, will you write us a report for the annual meeting? I said, are you going to print it? He said, well, I don't know. We hope to. I said, I ain't writing it. I hadn't given him a report since then. You know why? Because he's a poor steward. I'm not going to give him something that, costs, that takes me a valuable time and effort to put it together and him just decide he's going to bump it to put an ad in there for uh, church microphones. I'm not going to do that. Now look, I know it's always dangerous to, to say that this is what God does, but I think that's what this Word is teaching us. If we're not first having a commitment to take the message that God is going to show us to somebody else, then friends, all you're doing today is listening to a lecture. You ever wonder how sometimes in a congregation this size, God's Word just nails somebody. And it moves them to no end. And other folk just sit there stone-faced. Could it be the difference... God has found one to be a trustworthy steward, so He's flooding them with the rhema and the truth of His Word. And other folk are just sitting here, just have their curiosity, their ears tickled. He ain't giving them anything. Why? Because we don't have a commitment to share it. i got to run. Check this out. Number next. Oh yeah, we're going to finish in time. Notice else what Paul says. He says, number one, we're not to look, to our, look too highly upon our leaders. But finally in this passage, verse 3 through 5, he says we're not, to look, we're not to look too harshly upon ourselves. So here's what he does. He says, what's your view of your leaders? And then number two, what is your view of yourself? Those things are very important. And notice the first thing that he says in verse number 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. So what is Paul saying to us? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, do not let the criticism of others crush you. Don't let it happen. You know what Paul told the Corinthians? He's saying, look, y'all can, can size me up however you want to. Don't care. Your opinion of me is, is, is of no count. So, can I just say to you, why in the world... Do we let some negative Nancy ruin our day? Because Paul says, that don't, that don't bother me because you're not my judge. You're not the one I'm going to answer to. So he just comes out right plainly and says that you and I are not to let the criticism of others crush you. Caleb taught Sunday school this morning, did an outstanding job. But he asked this question up front. He said, what's the most encouraging thing somebody's ever said to you? <laughs> Here's one of the most encouraging things somebody's ever said to me. Somebody said to me not too long ago, you're not as bad a guy as I heard you were. <laughs> I thought, yay, we're making progress. <laughs> hey, What? I'm not going to let the criticism of others. <laughs> See, God's given me opportunity to apply what we're learning right here, right? <laughs> Boy, let me just say to you, if you're worried about what others think of you, you're in for a long road. Look what Paul says. Not only does he say, don't let the criticism of others crush you, but he says, don't even let your own conscience condemn you. Now, 
I think Paul's on to something right here because you know what stops so many people from rowing? They just have such a low view of themselves until the devil has them slap out of service. I mean, you know, the Bible talks about having an overinflated ego, pride. But I will tell you, in my ministry, I've had to pump more people up than I've had pull people down. It seems that we just suffer with a crisis of low self-esteem and poor self-image. And notice what it is that Paul says here in verse number 3. He says, in fact, I do not even examine myself. Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Now that's amazing to me. You know what that speaks of? Friend, that speaks of the thorough, absolute completeness of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Son, when His blood is applied to your account, your sin is gone. He sees it no more. Can I ask you a question? What are you doing still living like you're guilty when He said you're clean? And that's amazing to me. You know why it's amazing? Because you know what Paul was? Friend, he was a murderer. He was a persecutor of the church. But after he met Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ so cleansed this man until he said, I'm not even aware of anything against me. Well, wait a minute. There's a lot of critics who would have reminded Paul that you're a murderer. No, not in the sight of God. I'm clean. I'm a saint. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. Friend, if it's under the blood, you are clean. Stop letting your past influence your present. In the name of Jesus, break free of those bonds. Know that you are a child of God, beloved in His sight, and you are valuable to the kingdom. Don't let your self-conscious pull you down and keep you off the oar. Man, grab a hold of that thing and let's go. We don't have time to sit around and whine. We've got stuff to do. Check out what Paul says. He says, don't let your own conscience condemn you, verse number 3 and 4. He said, but you know what? I'm not acquitted by this. He said, I might be ignorant of something. I don't know, but here's what he's talking about. He's saying this, I have been a steward of the Master. And he said, the only one who can judge me or evaluate my job performance as a steward is the one I serve. And that's who Paul's worried about. Hey, can I just say to you, if you please Him, it doesn't matter who else you please or displease. If we'll just focus on pleasing the Master, let the naysayers criticize all they want to. It doesn't matter. You just keep on pleasing the Master. Check out number next and I'm done. Paul says, we're not to look too harshly upon ourselves. Hey, I want to challenge you to come out of the poor old pitiful me victim's mentality. Quit viewing yourself as worthless. Stop viewing yourself as inferior and get a good biblical perspective of who you are in Christ Jesus. That'll help you. Check out number next. The last thing he says is let the future commendation of the Lord calm you. So what is it that ought to calm us in the midst of a lot of criticism? And sometimes our own conscience screaming out against us. What is it? Well, look what Paul says in verse number 5. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's heart. Let me stop right there. Does that give you hope? Or does that cause you to shudder in your shoes? It'll tell you where you are with the Lord. Because most of the time when we start talking about the Lord's going to bring to light things that are cloaked in darkness, we all get real scared. Because we know what we did in the darkness. Huh? And it troubles us. Paul uses this in the exact opposite context. He said, let this encourage you. Let this be your motivation for going on. That when the Lord discloses, and here's what he's saying. Some of you have been good stewards. And you haven't done it in the limelight. You haven't done it for recognition. You hadn't got 
recognized by the convention. Your name wasn't printed in the state newspaper. You weren't asked to speak at the pastor's conference. You weren't invited to the missionary seminar. None of that. But hey, let this encourage you. God knows what you're doing. And don't be mistaken. One day you're going to get your due commendation from Him. It just blows my mind that Paul uses bringing things in darkness to light and revealing the motives of men's heart as motivation, encouragement. Look what he says. Then each man's praise... Look what he said. He didn't say. Each man's condemnation or criticism or judgment. He said each man's praise is going to come from the Lord. Isn't that cool? You know, one of the things I'm not too good at is just giving out commendations. And I'm practicing on being better at that. I really am. But there are some of you that are going to receive pretty high praise from the Lord Jesus. Now, let that be shocking to you because probably up in the day you've been scared to death to stand before Him. But I want to tell you, if you stand before Him as a blood-bought, blood-washed child of God, all of that stuff you're worrying about is gone! And those things that you're doing in secret for His honor and glory... All of those days that you spent in the belly of this ship sweating and laboring on an oar and nobody even knew you were there, one day, standing before thrones in glory, some of the highest praise is going to go out to people who may have never been recognized on planet earth. I mean, some days it's going to be that person who has been faithfully in their prayer closet every day, praying to the God who sees in secret, and one day God's going to reward you openly. One day it's going to be those people who've done the things outside of the limelight that are going to be standing and receiving the highest praise from the one himself who's worthy of all honor and praise, Lord Jesus Christ. So let me close like how I started. How are you looking? How are you looking at your leaders? And number two, how you're looking at yourself. Because it'll change the way you function in the church. Hey, if your hand's not on an oar today, get there. You don't have to know why. You don't have to know where. You just need to know what and need to know how. We'll help you do that. In Jesus' name, look forward to that day when you stand before Him and each man's praise comes from the Lord. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us, God, at the most basic level of how we look at things. Because how we look at things will determine a lot about us. I pray, God, that you'll help us see ourselves today as who we are in Christ, not who others tell us we are, what others say about us, how the world defines us. But God, would you help us have our self-view based on who we are in Christ Jesus, what he's done for us and who he's made us. And God, I pray you would help us this day see ourselves not as the captain, but as an under rower. Help us get our hand to the plow, and in this case, literally our hand on an oar, so we can get Grace Church from where she is to ultimately where you are guiding us from the bridge. So I pray for those who are here today, God, that you have been speaking to them about getting involved, spending their life doing things that have eternal value for the King of Kings. God, may this be the day that they settle that issue with you. I pray for those whom you're calling to be a part of this church. I pray today would be the day they settle that. I pray for those whom you're calling to salvation. They've never been born again. And God, today is the day that you're calling them to themselves. I pray, God, you give faith where faith is needed courage where courage is needed. God calls us to be faithful for your honor and glory. John Wilson is up here on this side. Colin Dollar is right here in front. God said something to you and you just need somebody to pray with you or you'd like somebody to encourage you, help hold you accountable. These men would love to talk with you. But in Jesus' name, God's spoken. Just be faithful to Him.